Welcome travelers, I'm Josh. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. tonight to go through our second take, our deeper dive into Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. In our last session, we did an overview. We talked about the, the book. We talked about the things we liked, our general expectations, what we thought it meant, and what we thought it didn't mean. Most importantly, we promise you we'd be coming back to the topic, digging in deep, and really going into the different sections for some really in-depth conversation. Along those lines, Josh, you had some thoughts about some of the opening section. What were your Absolutely. thoughts? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Lee Winika. So we're going to start tonight with some of the character options and the customization of origin that are featured right at the very, the very beginning of the book. I'm going to start talking about custom lineage first. And the basic premise behind the custom lineage, it is breaking down the stereotypical traits that your character's species had in in prior editions. Um, now, first of all, just talking about the choice of word there, which I think is a really important shift and something that Lee Wanik and I talked about in the initial episode on Tasha's is how they are consciously trying to get away from using the word race, that they're specifically trying, they're, they're trying to change the language and change the conversation to switch use of, of race back down to, to species. And Liwanika, I know that when we were talking earlier, you said that that's a change that you really feel is overdue. Absolutely. You know, I have for over a year or so, and I've talked about it, I will probably continue to talk about it for quite some time, really stopped using the phrase race in relation to the various role-playing games that, that I play. It started more as a subconscious thing, and became a conscious decision. At some point, I started recognizing the few times that I used the word, and it just felt off, and it continues to feel off. One of the things I don't think we've talked about yet, but I'm sure we'll talk about in greater detail, is my, my children play, and in specific, my youngest, who's now a young teenager, just recently turned 14. He's been playing for a number of years, playing since he was about 10, and in this modern world, I am very conscious when he's at my table of the words I use, even in this fictional context. It makes a difference to me how we deal with that. I have recently started playing in a lot more open scenarios at conventions, at charity events, just open, open games uh, at the game store before COVID. And virtual games from virtual conventions now since co since the, the lockdowns began last spring. And in those scenarios, to me, inclusivity is so very important. Bringing more people to this hobby is 
of critical importance to me. I feel a bit of responsibility as a storyteller and even more so now that I'm a content creator to be inclusive in my language and in my methodology. And so to be supported by a major publisher in this way, so it's not me hand-waving or DM fiating to make that happen is a really good thing. And a, to me, it's a strong message. Yeah, I don't want to downplay any of that because I think that you are spot on and you have experiences in this regard that I'm that I just don't have. And I think that your experience here is really, really important and really, really poignant. When I first heard about the change that they were going to make, I was one of the people that wasn't wasn't crazy about it on face value because we talked about this in, in the beginning episode, but you know, I wondered why they would be changing the definition of what makes certain species, certain species, what, what their defining characteristics were without taking away from your experience, looking at the environment in 2020, I guess my question was this bit about changing and customizing your lineage takes up about a page and a half at the very beginning of the book. And there is really no discussion of, of the narrative framework or anything else to go ahead and hang on to make these kind of decisions, to guide a player into these kind of decisions. I applaud them for doing it cautiously by wondering what their motivation was. And if their motivation was what you're looking for, to go ahead and bring more inclusivity into the game and to go ahead and bring the game to a wider audience, I guess I would feel like it would get more of a treatment in the book if that was their motivation. It kind of feels like, is it something that they're putting on at the beginning of the book to go ahead and get it done without sort of any other meat on that boat? I'm really of two minds about how it works within the context of Natasha's culture. On one level, I applaud, support the fact that it's even there, that this is even a discussion. But on another level, I'm not the biggest fan of the mechanic itself and right. how it actually works for a lot of the same reasons you mentioned. I think narratively it's weak. Yep. Worst case scenario is it's suspect. Yep. Um, I, I am not a fan of the way it worked out. I have yep. been very vocal with people I've talked to. I showed this in the last episode of the Ancestry and Culture, an alternative to race in 5e by Eugene Marshall. I've had this book for a very long time. So on one level, this is a discussion that's been happening in our community for a great period of time. The events of this summer were not the first time these events have happened. It was when these events were talked about the loudest. The book that I just mentioned was out before those events. I've had this for quite some time. And I find that this did a better job with the issues we're discussing than Tasha's. Effectively, ancestry and culture said there are some things that are part of physically who you are, your ancestor, whether you have dark vision, whether you're tall, whether you're short, whether you're small, whether you're wide, those parameters are handled by your ancestry whether you have wings, um, you know, whether you have fire resistance, those are specifically things that have to do with your ancestry. The language you speak, the training you have, the features that you have, uh, whether, you can, whether you cast magic, it is not a biochemical thing, it is a training thing. Those are cultural aspects. So this book separates into those areas where Tasha says, 
be whatever you want, pick whatever you want. This book says there's a specific difference. So if you're going to be a dwarf that does elven things, you by definition have to be a dwarf that was raised by elves. Right. If you wish to be a halfling that does Goliath things, you have to be a halfling who was raised by Goliaths. And I think that has a much stronger narrative quotient than what we're seeing out of Tasha. And I think it's important to note that that book by Eugene Marshall, that's not a Wizards of the Coast publication. No, it is not. Uh, I got it on DMs Guild. It's worthwhile for DMs to look at. If you're looking for a way to take Tasha's rules and find a way to homebrew, to give it that narrative quotient, I think you can take the combination of those two books and come up with something that's narratively strong for your kit, for your team. Yeah. yeah, because that's, and again, I uh, part of this might be because our approach to this game is from a storyteller perspective. Even when we're playing, we're coming at it from a storyteller perspective. We're trying to tell our particular character story. We're trying to tell the world story or whatever. Um, but that whole bit about narrative and how to define a custom lineage within a narrative landscape and, and having a lack of scaffolding to kind of attach any of this onto is really important. You know, you and I were talking about a character that I've got in my game right now. Uh, he is a dwarf. He grew up in kind of the dwarven part of my world and from a very early age made a character decision to move to the capital of the human kingdom and since then has basically lived among humans uh, specifically to go ahead and run a store and take their money which is the most dwarven of reasons ever to go live among the humans but it's to the point that other dwarves look at him and think that he looks too human so speaking of narrative framework, because you and I always start from that perspective. How does this hit the story? How does this benefit the story? How does this benefit the table? Let's move into the other sections that come up in that character origin section or the character option section. Let's talk about changing skills and also changing your subclasses. So I think that, uh, I think that, like you said, they kind of have the same criticism that, that we had with, with custom lineage is that they are talking about fundamental changes to the makeup of that character from a pen and paper point of view that don't automatically have any sort of narrative framework. Now, storytellers like you and I, who have been doing these sorts of things for a very, very long time and have experience of wrapping a narrative framework around these sorts of changes, I think will be okay. I think that particularly when you start looking at the sudden change aspects for as cool as they are, and I do want to underscore that some of that the idea behind a sudden change in subclass or even a shift in subclass that kind of boils over time and eventually comes to a head. I, I love the concept of them. I worry that they have the potential to be abused, though, by, uh, by, by players that are trying to min-max or trying to go ahead and maximize the rules or are really trying to throw a shift in the overall feeling of a party or even a story that's being told by suddenly shifting their characters subclass in in the ways that are spelled out in the book like I, the the one that that got me was the one that was talking about the paladin who in a crisis of faith that kind of lasted over a long period of time eventually decides to change their sub their, their subclass because of some sort of catastrophic event that happens in their life and i think that that wrestling with 
an aspect of faith is something that a person who is playing Dungeons & Dragons can, I, that more and more people can identify with. Absolutely. And, and has that sort of, that sort of crisis of faith resonating with them. I think that from a mechanical point of view, it poses challenges for a storyteller. And I know one thing that we're going to be talking about later when we get into our role of the DM episode is that when should a, a storyteller or a game master say yes? And when should a storyteller say no? And kind of where is that line? Where is, you know, when should, when should a yes be a yes, but, and when should a no not be a yes, but, you know, that, that sort of, that sort of dynamic is when, when are changes like this potentially so damaging to the dynamic of the game that they need to be really um, suppressed or, Reined in. Uh, reined in, yeah. You know, and I think that with Tasha's, like every other supplement that's come out, the important thing to know is that these are optional rules and that as the storyteller, you get to decide which optional rules are in and which optional rules are out, but that that's a conversation. This is going to be a conversation that you're going to have to have with your players now. If a player wants to dramatically change their subclass because of a dramatic personality shift in their character. Absolutely. So I'm going to call out a scenario, a few scenarios here. There are some scenarios where this is an amazing mechanic that's going to be great. You're playing a paladin. You're playing uh, Oath of the Ancients paladin who fails. Your homeland is destroyed. Your village is destroyed. Whatever you were basically protecting for your ancients has absolutely failed. The, the bad guy won, right? But you're only levels eight. There's still a lot of levels of adventure out there for you. You're mad that this happened, and now you're an Oath of Vengeance Paladin. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. That makes sense to me. This yep. switch works well for that. There's narrative support for that. that that's fine. Uh, in the opposite, you're an Oath of Vengeance Paladin who, guess what? Gets his vengeance. You caught the demon. You beat the bad guy. But you're level 10, and there's a lot of adventure left. Or worse yet, your DM didn't plan too well, and the rest of you and the rest of your party were strong enough, you got your revenge at level three. <laughs> you know, uh, again, now you're there. Now, what's interesting with the, this scenario, and there are many, many more that I could go into, but what's interesting with this scenario is it is a distillation, it is a fine-tuning of a mechanic that exists in Adventure League play. Uh, eventually play has this thing for those who've not played organized play with 5e called a level five rewrite. I don't know if that's a technical term, but that's what they called it in my shop, and that's effectively what it is. As long as you're before level five, whatever character you're playing, you can rewrite that character entirely. Everything like oh. it's race, it's it's everything. I believe, if I remember correctly, you keep the same stats because organized yep. play only allows point by or standard array. So your stats stay the same, but you can change the race. You can change every element of the character you want, class, all the whole bit. And it's huh. perfectly okay. You keep all of the things, magic items and such that you've earned through organized play. I always had a problem with that from a narrative standpoint. <laughs> um, this is far better and far superior to, than that. So it's, it's, less, it's less in scope, yeah. Right. And, and so on some levels, it makes sense. You know, if you're playing a bard, the different subclasses of Bard are a little bit closer. They make more sense. In many cases, moving from one type of, of rogue to another is not a significant change. Any rogue to an assassin, I get it. 
yep. an assassin who switches to something else looking that's not down with the killing anymore. These are things that make sense to me. Any right. rogue becoming a mastermind. Look, I just got smarter about it. You know, I, I, I just reached level eight. Now I have yeah. minions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, the other side of that coin is the barbarian, though. If the barbarian basically comes in two varieties, you've got your fightery stereotype type barbarians and you've got your tribal shaman type barbarians and crossing back and forth between those doesn't necessarily make more sense. doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I have some challenges with it, and I think this really puts a lot of onus on the storytellers and DMs at the tables to really decide what makes sense for their game. This is going to be a discussion that you will have to have during a session zero. Look, I love Tasha. This is what you're going to say as a, D, as a DM. And there are all of the options there are pretty much up for grabs. But if you're going to be changing your subclass, I'm going to need it one, a heads up. And two, we're going to have to see how, uh, how I support that within the, have to have one within the, the store. store. Yeah. I think that makes for some challenges. Again, when we talk about role of the DM, we're going to get into the details of how do you have that discussion? How do you tell a player the story idea you have doesn't work for my campaign, my campaign table, or the change you're asking for changes the dynamic. So you're overstepping another player character and I'm not okay with you taking somebody else's limelight, you know, or somebody else's role at the table or within the party. These are things that if you can change subclasses you have to be aware of so i have some challenges with the mechanic and how it works but at the same time i do like the fact that that tool is there that can be used at the end of the day i think this is one of those things that i would prefer it as something the dm can use to enhance the game less than an option that players get to choose on a whim or simply because they as an individual like it because they as an individual liking something may not always be the best thing for everybody at the table, lest we yep. forget that social contract. Yep, exactly. And I, I, I exactly feel the same way on that, that, you know, this is a, this is a, a rule that is going to create one-on-one -on -one game time and everybody else at the table might as well go shopping while Vlad the Barbarian or Vlad the Fighter starts talking about how he's changing some of us. So. You know, like I said, there are plenty of subclass changes that make sense and would work fine. And there are others that will be challenging. In relation to skills and swapping out skills, a bit less of an issue because in general, skills in 5e are a mechanical issue more so than a narrative issue. There, it, it's not like 3.5 where there were some skills that if you didn't have them, you weren't allowed to do them. So you, any player can do any skill. The question is, how many points do they get to add to their D20 roll? Yep. You get to add your stat bonus. You get to add your proficiency bonus if you have a, a dot in that skill. Yep. If you don't, you still have it. So. If one game, if one session your player was really good at investigating and the next game they really don't like investigation because it's not a heavy investigation game and they're much better at survival, its impact is relatively minor in the scope of the game. So I guess I don't have a big feeling one way or the other about it. I think it's kind of 
But at the same time, I would say that's probably my only or my biggest concern with 5e or the biggest break in the game for me personally, which is I love a more robust skill system that is based on I can do something that nobody else can do. And unfortunately, that's the one thing that 5e doesn't allow for on the skill level. They do it and, and stuff like that. So. And I get why they did it. It has made for a much easier game to run as a DM. So thank you for that. And Um, a much easier game to run as a player too. Like that's. But to me, it's a little immersion breaking. The fact that everybody can do everything. Yep. (laughs) That's fair. So I know we're going to talk a lot more about classes in our next episode. We're going to break down the the nitty gritty of the classes that are featured. There's a lot in chapter one about the classes, but I want to skip over the rest of that for right now. And I want to get into chapter two in what I think is the strongest portion of this book and the portion of the book that I know immediately that I am going to be able to work into my game. And that is all the rules around group patrons and the mechanic that they put in place in excellent detail in how patronage of a particular party is going to work i know in the in the the preview episode you and i talked a lot we gushed a lot about patrons because both of us saw this chapter and saw that they had put charts and they had put rules and they had put narrative around something that we had been doing the hard way for a long time you know like I, we were talking offline and I was saying, you know what, I have taken nails and I have tried to push them into walls. And it's like somebody just handed me a hammer and all of a sudden I can build stuff. Like, you know, things that, that we were doing instinctively because they made sense now are codified and uh, have been given new options and new life in this chapter. Absolutely. Audience, please forgive me. I'm going to give you a lot of analogies in this section because this section is that good. It is deserving <laughs> of multiple analogies. So to follow what Josh just said, I have hammered in nails with combat boots. Uh, any uh, army, uh, our, our army personnel, any service persons that are out there within the sound of my voice, we've all done it. We've all, whether we're, whether we're hammering that nail with our boot, with our foot in the boot, or we're using the boot as a hammer, we've done it or attempted to do it. It ain't were they easy. foot soldiers? It, it, yeah, exactly. It ain't easy. It ain't fun, but we've had to get the job done. Um, and if it weren't nails, it was certainly tent pegs. Uh, um, uh, my my fellow Boy Scouts out there, we've done a few of those as well. So I can tell you that I've been doing group patrons or group patron adjacents for a very long time. In fact, I would dare say anybody who's been playing the game for any length of time, we've all been in a party or run a table that had a party, walk into a tavern, pull a wanted poster off the post, read it, gone out into the woods, searched a dungeon, searched a castle, found a bad guy, brought back the bad guy, brought back the treasure, whatever the case may be, only to have the sheriff, the knight, the marshal, the noble, the bartender, or some mercenary captain say, you want a job? You're hired. <laughs> if you've ever been in that game, if you've ever run that game, if you've ever seen that scenario, you've seen a group patron at work. Yep. All this mechanic did was let us play. It is amazing. I I, I feel like this book was like 
Tony Robbins with his head mic on, standing on the stage saying, and you get your potential unlocked. You get your potential unlocked. This is for you. You know, or Oprah. Wow. You get a group patron. You get a group patron. And everybody gets a group patron. Absolutely. You know, yeah. this is that good. It's that amazing. It, it, is, it's, it is so well done. Josh, you asked me earlier, like, how did they manage to do this? What is it that, why wasn't it this easy for as long as we've been trying to get this done? Well, right. So, I mean, the bigger question is more, I mean, you and I have been storytelling for a very, very long time. I know we, we, we beat that dead horse quite a bit that we're old, but we have been players for a long time. We have been storytellers for a long time. We've been storytellers in a variety of systems before. You know, we've story told big games. We've story told little games. We've story told complicated games. We've story told simple games. How did we not come up with this? How did how did we not how did we not put such a fine point on it um, as what they put on here? And again, you know, it it all comes down. They have in effect built in that narrative framework that's needed for Adventure Zero. The shadowy guy in the alleyway with the bag of money that works for the for the demi lich, right? That is a that is a twenty level adventure. That, that is unfolding in front of you. And it all is based on patron now. And the, the point about this isn't just going to be something that I'm going to apply to my player characters, but now every, every character that they come in contact with that is in effect working with or for or in conjunction with a, a group, they've got patrons too, you know? It really, it, it, it adds this lovely, you know, to kind of bring the episode full circle a little bit here, all the criticism that we had about chapter one, about how they seemed to be changes without any in-character reason, we have exactly the opposite feedback for this chapter. This chapter is full of in-game reasons for benefits and adventures and perks and conflict. You know, when you're shifting from, when you've got one, when you're in the service of one patron and a, and a, a, a rival patron tries to make a play for your, for your party, or a rival patron has blackmail on your patron, or blackmail on you, and, and that sort of chess match style conflict is how so much, good how much narrative power does the bad guy watched members of your party murder hobo and have proof of it going back to your liege lord when you're a, of a noble yeah and saying the people under your patronage in your name did this crime yeah God forbid he's an, an aristocrat or a noble. Like if you're yeah. working for for Duke High Muckety Muck, who has hired your party to go do this, and your party steps out once, oh, holy crap! As a means, uh, uh, a lot of DMs. There's been a lot of talk in the community. I I dare say every YouTube content creator I have ever watched has had at least one, if not two, episodes and. 15 mentions of how murder hoboism is a concern, if not that, a problem. Mm -hmm. This provides an in-game reason to not have that happen, or at least apply consequences. Yeah. And that's amazing. Players want narrative framework, even if they don't know it. I'm going to give you all a secret. 
if you're within the sound of my words, I'm going to whisper it real, really low for you. Players want narrative flow. They want a narrative. They want a story. Was that whispery enough? I'm not Unless sure. they don't, but that's a separate conversation. I mean, yeah, that's the that's the best part about the the overall structure of Dungeons and Dragons is that the game is called Dungeons and Dragons because it it used to be a glorified board game, right? It was you and your party went into the dungeon, killed the guys, got the loot, went to the next dungeon, right? And that game is still fully supported. And in a game like that, patron might be less important. Right. If all that if all that it is, you know, there's a uh, there's a fantastic pen and paper game that I've got called Dyson Dragons. That is a lot of fun, and it comes with these very simple. It's almost like a, like a really rules stripped down version of Dungeons and Dragons, where you all kind of play like like archetype characters. Like there is a cleric, there's a ranger, there's a fighter, there's a wizard, you know, that kind of thing. And there's no narrative there at all, unless you unless you build it. Um, but it's basically it's basically you know. There are five to ten uh, encounters in the span of a of a session. A session lasts anywhere from like three to four hours, and every encounter is you go, you kill the things, you get some money, you get some experience points, and then you go back and then you go back to the next encounter, and then you kill some things and you get some money and you get some experience, and then you can progress your level. You can progress your level and you can buy things. The narrative is very much secondary to just the mechanic of picking up dice rolling the dice and seeing if you get the bad guys before the bad guys get you that's really all that it is yeah and, and there's a place for that there's yep. there's there's a place for that yep. every now and then we all drop into a quick game that's actually part of the reason why i like adventure league i like sometimes just doing the mechanics and being story light and by the way adventure league is not always story light i've played some adventure league games where some dms did a fantastic job of bringing story or allowing story to be brought out through the characters it is just however not as much of a focus as you'll find in a standard campaign game adventure league dms who run me through dragon heist for example found great ways to bring story and levity and moments to that game that were probably not in black and white, but not outside of the Adventure League framework either. So again, it's there, but it's not necessarily the focus. The patron here that we talk about here in Tasha's a lot is is really for the campaign, whether it be homebrew or in exactly. a, even if it's by the book in a specific game setting. Either way, this is more for the campaign than the one-off adventure it is definitely a campaign mechanic it's a campaign um, mechanic exactly. and it is powerful in the hands of dms at homebrew if you're a homebrew kind of dm either a little or a lot this is definitely a mechanic you're gonna you're gonna find great use for totally agree other than the patrons my favorite part of the book, of the book, by the way, I agree with Josh. Like, this is the thing that I went for. I actually mentioned to Josh uh, at some point earlier that if Tasha's Cauldron of Everything was simply Tasha's Cauldron of Group Patron, I would have bought it at twice its price. <laughs> like, those few pages alone was worth the cost of the entire book. 
<laughs> but I, I wanted to talk about one other thing that comes up in the Dungeon Masters section, and then I think we're going to leave the rest of Tasha's for our following episode. But I wanted to talk about the sidekick. Yep. Very reminiscent of 3.5, in my opinion. Those in the community, let me know your thoughts on it. I used to love the NPC characters. The NPC classes in 3.5 were, were awesome. awesome. I, I love them so much that very frequently I would ask my DM if we were starting level three adventures, if I could get one or two levels of the NPC class and then tack on my actual PC class level because I loved the flavor and the narrative within those classes a lot. I would say one of the things that I was missing the most from 5e was that. There's tons of homebrews out there for zero level characters. How do you do it? How can you get that to happen? How do you make that happen? Those types of things. Well, guess what? Now, you don't have to necessarily homebrew a zero level character. You could start as you could start your character as a sidekick. They could be two levels of that and then move into the other levels and still without a whole lot of extra effort on the part of the DM. They'd be X number of levels. They'd be able to maintain their proficiency bonuses. I think it would move much, much more easily into the game totally. rather than zero level or what have you. Just have them yeah. sidekicks for a period of time. Yeah, I mean, in, it's the, the concept, again, the concept of sidekicks is something that I use in my campaign now because it was a missing feature. The, the party just last game, they were chasing a 20-foot carnivorous snake that could chew through rock and you know they had like a, they had a handful of tribal warriors from the from the place where they were you know at one point as the as the party is winding their way through the the narrow corridors chasing the snake the guy at the back of the party the snake punched the ceiling ate him and pulled him up that was a zero level character he had a character sheet he didn't have very many hit points but basically he was the uh, the warrior class from 3.5 which was one which was one of their sidekick classes. Absolutely. So the book goes into a few specific sidekicks. The expert, and by way of that, you can think rogue. And and I may be generalizing, but I'm I'm going to generalize. You have spellcaster, which can break down into priest, sorcerer, wizard, hedge wizard, witch, cleric. I suspect you could flavor it bard, bard-like, though that might be a little bit more of a stretch. Low-level um, alchemist, you know, that kind of thing. You know, yeah, the, alchemist. The, 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 the guy that's making pulse to, you know. you know, medic, if you, those of you who like the homebrew would like to say he's making a poultice, not a spell, but it's effectively the same. It does the same effect as a spell. You've got battlefield medics in that regard. There's, there's a number of ways you can do that. And, of course, there's the warrior, uh, whether it be a town guard or what have you. Now, is there a town guard stat block? Absolutely. The monster manual has great stat blocks for that. The uh, the community has built wonderful tools for town guards of various levels. So you have them at various means. If you're using the homebrew section of D&D Beyond, you can search by CR level, just put in guard and you get a whole bunch of options or bandits and get a whole bunch of options. So there's different ways to do that, but this gives you a way to now individualize a specific character for the purposes of supporting the characters within your game. So Johnny the Warrior is now the the person who follows the knight. Um, Josh, help me out. Uh, 
the name is Squire. The Squire for the night. I, I have to. Talk, I have to look to my Skadian friends to uh, to help me out in these areas. Who happens uh, to be and, a Squire? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. You know, the captain of your guard may actually be a fighter. May actually be captain of the guard stat block, but the rest of your guards may just be warriors. There may be a barbarian village, but most of them are not going to be the class barbarian with rage. A lot of them will be warriors there's different ways to come at this game and this really does a fantastic job of covering that ground the two other big sections of the dungeon master tools were uh two very heavy stat block roll table heavy sections the parlaying with monster section and the supernatural region section uh we talked earlier about chapters that are full of roll tables it's not very often that i'm going to go through and roll the dice to go ahead and kind of determine which option are in here but it was really great to see kind of the way that the options are laid out um, so that I can go through and pick which ones are most appropriate. I do really like the depth that these particular roll tables went into, though, because, you know, if you do need to come up with something on the fly, boy, it makes it really, really nice and really, really easy. If they do decide to, instead of trying to kill the giant, to try negotiating with the giant, being able to, to real quickly decide... Uh, and with that that bit of randomness and that bit of chance that we all we all love about that aspect of this game, that's really really interesting. Absolutely. And regarding supernatural regions and the the detail in those tables, every storyteller has had that time where he was convinced, planned for hours and days that the party went left, and then at the table, the party chose to go right. And that's going to happen. It, yep. If it doesn't happen as, as a storyteller, you're doing something wrong. As a storyteller, I want something that's in-depth enough so I can sound like I had it planned. Like, I have a good way and a good ability to say, okay, you went left. So you start going this way, and I'll let the first part of that journey be relatively mundane, not much. I may throw a minor encounter with natural things and leave it at that. But in the meantime, while they're dealing with those natural things, or I'll leave them in a campfire scene so it's more players talking to players. Meanwhile, I'm working out this other idea. I have a book that's got a table. I know where they're going. My campaign world has a general idea of what's in that area, but I haven't plotted that out greatly. I now have enough to go by where I can complete a session that doesn't sound like I don't know what I'm doing. Yep. Even if I had, didn't have it planned. Like I can just do something that's cool. If you're a storyteller really looking at getting to the next level, the idea is understanding you're never going to have all the answers but you got to know where to go to get them. Yep. And this is a book that has a lot of places to go get those answers. Yep. It's going to elevate your game simply by being a resource. Now, in order to take advantage of that resource, you got to read the section. You got to look at all the options. You have to take that time to know what's there. So when that moment happens, you're like, ooh, that's in Tasha's, that's in the supernatural region section, mm -hmm. or that's in the magical, magical phenomenon section. So I'm going to flip to that page, and I've got something for you. 
it's not dissimilar to what appears in other books as far as weather tables. Do you really know every, do you need to know everything and have everything, but does everything need to be this crazy superstorm? No, but you can't go seven days of it rained. Yep. Or it was sunny. Yep. Or no, it was windy. Every absolutely. now and then you need to have something really cool happen. And if you're at a loss, you need to know that exists in such and such a book uh, in such and such a section. So I can get that answer. And um, this is going to help you with these areas, natural hazards, puzzles. I don't know about yep. a lot of people. I've seen a lot of uh, content creators uh, talk about puzzles lately. I think yep. it goes around in circles. Every couple of years, content creators will talk about puzzles. Josh and I will probably do, if not an episode, certainly it will be a facet of an episode at some point in the future. Yep. Uh, but it, once again, we now have a place where we can get some answers and we can find some ways to incorporate those. So yep. when we do that, we'll come at you with, hey, we took this from Tasha's and this is how we implemented it in our campaign. Yeah. So I actually thought that the infestation uh, subchapter in this one was uh, – positively chilling and disgusting in all the right ways. Um, and so like, it was really just, uh, just really fabulous. And, you know, uh, to your point about how as a storyteller, you don't always know every direction that your players are going to go. You know, it's the, it's in both a, a kind of collaborative world building type progression or a more linear progression um, where, you know, you kind of have more, more of the plot laid out exactly and that they're going to go from point A to point B to point C. The one thing that you always have to know is where are your players and what's the end? What is the end milestone? What, how does that thing end? Even if, even if the, the exact ending is ambiguous, like there will be a battle and I don't know who will win, you've got to know that that's where you're going. Because if you don't, if you don't know where you're going, then there's no way you, you, you can't get there. I mean, it's, you know, this book, this chapter in particular is going to help you get there when your players get a little lost. When your players, you know, encounter the, the dried riverbed that nobody understands why it went dry and somebody wants to investigate five miles down river and you know as a storyteller, like, no, 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 you've got to investigate here. Don't go look and see what happened five miles up river. Look right here. This is a book that will help you kind of redirect them. Yeah, absolutely. And in general, and, and it goes back to the previous section, this is a book that's going to give you the reason or the catalyst to go on that adventure. This is going to give you the support mechanisms for that adventure. And it's going to give you the options and activities and situations during that adventure. Patrons, sidekicks, and all of the tables involving parlaying, supernatural regions, magical phenomena, natural hazards, and puzzles. As something from the storyteller, this is, imp this is empowering. When Josh and I said in our initial review that as a storyteller, as a DM, this book will become essential for us, this is why. This is what we were talking about. This is why, because of the, these sections, chapter two, chapter four is going to get us the, those critical pieces of information. As a player, chapter one, meh, but... Chapter two, chapter four, spot on, extraordinarily well done. And so I think we'll leave it right there. Yep. 
Yep. I think what we want to do is we want to save our deep dive into the class options, the uh, subclass options, uh, some discussion about changes within that, that framework. We're going to do that in our third and final Tasha's episode. Yep. In the meantime, I think that this is a great time to invite all of our audience members to comment on what they've heard so far questions yeah. if there's anything you want us to expand on let us know because if we absolutely if we get to do a fourth episode on a book we love guess what much the better we're all about it yeah so let me go ahead and give you those details and tell you how you can engage with us so hopefully you guys all know about the website ttjourneys.com that's got all of our blog entries including all of these podcast episodes publishing directly through there um, so that's one way that you can go ahead and interact with us become a subscriber on on that page um, and you can comment on all the blog entries as we put them up there we have a lot of content there other than these these podcast openings we're pretty active on twitter the handle is ttjourneys also and so you can go ahead and uh, follow us there um, and right back and forth. That's a lot of smaller updates and, and things like that that just kind of happen, uh, happen during the day. We'd love to go ahead and hear from you there. Also, uh, the other way that you can reach us is through email. And our email address is ttjourneys at gmail.com. Josh, the main moderator, narrator, and, and ship steerer, if I can create a word, on our Twitter handle is going to be the, right there for you. We respond. We love to talk to people about this game. So if you hit us up, we're going to reply. In addition to all the places that Josh mentioned, please know that uh, Tabletop Journeys has also been made available on Stitcher. And as of the time of this recording, is now available on iTunes. As we get more platforms, we're going to let you know. All we ask is if you're listening to us in any of those areas, subscribe. If you're listening to us in any of those areas, like, leave comments, talk to, talk about, be constructive, tell us what you like, tell us what you want to see more of, let us adapt and make this podcast more. The beauty of Tabletop Journeys and kind of the mission statement that we've had in our heads is we're walking a path. And along this path, we're going to be stopping at places of interest. We want as many people along that journey with us as possible. So if it interests you, that's a place we want to stop. So you you put up the signposts so we can uh, talk about them on this podcast. So again, feel free, be sure, leave us those likes and comments. We welcome them both. Ask questions. We'll, we'll respond back to you in, in, during the podcast. Certainly. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.